Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Still a lot happening in the world. It is crazy out there. And today's podcast will take a major slice of that craziness and hopefully put some order to it. Just a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, Some exciting things happening over at Waking Up. To coincide with the beginning of summer, we kicked off an initiative we've called 100 Days of Giving. Each day we'll pick one person at random within the app to help us give away $10,000 to any one of 10 extremely effective charities. And we're about seven days into that campaign, and it will go on all summer. So we'll give a million dollars away over the course of 100 days, and Waking Up subscribers will help us do that. Uh, We're giving to a wide range of causes, from the Malaria Consortium to the Clean Air Task Force, to the International Rescue Committee, the Cure Alzheimer's Fund, the Animal Welfare Fund, the Climate Change Fund. All of these are organizations that um, we got some good advice on. And if you're a subscriber to Waking Up, you'll see more information within the app. Anyway, I'm really happy about that. Also in Waking Up, we're launching a new category of content called Life to add to the theory and practice sections in the app. We've always described Waking Up as not just another meditation app, and in part that's been justified by how we approach the topic of meditation itself. It's not merely a means of calming down or becoming more productive, but rather it's a practice that can open doors to truly life-changing insights into a new way of being in the world. But there's certainly more to living a fulfilling life than exploring the nature of one's mind directly through meditation. So we're creating a section in the app that can absorb courses on a wider range of topics related to happiness and decision-making, leadership, wealth, parenting, and many other topics. And we're launching today with the beginnings of a wonderful course on time management that the writer Oliver Berkman has produced for us. He wrote a book on the topic I really loved titled 4,000 Weeks, and now he's producing an audio course for us. So anyway, that should be in the app, if not now, later today, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited about it. And finally, here on the podcast, we have released another podcast feed titled The Best of Making Sense, where we resurface some of the older episodes that are truly evergreen. Rather than put them in the Making Sense feed itself, we have created a separate podcast, essentially. And you can find information about that by searching The Best of Making Sense. If you're a subscriber to the podcast, you need to get the private RSS link from my website which you can now do on mobile quite easily. It's essentially one touch. And if you're not a subscriber, you will once again be getting half episodes, but this seemed like a way to make the archive more accessible to new listeners, because there are very likely dozens, even scores of episodes new listeners have missed that they're unlikely to go back and find, which really are as good as they were on the day I recorded them. In fact, As a proof of concept, I just listened to the conversation I had with Bart Ehrman about Christianity and had forgotten how much I enjoyed it, and it's there to be found as a recent addition in the best of making sense. Okay. 
Today we're talking about the end of the world as we know it. That really is not much of an exaggeration. Because today I'm speaking with Peter Zion and Ian Bremmer. Uh, and we're focusing on Peter's new book titled The End of the World is Just the Beginning, which is a fairly dire look at the implications of deglobalization and demographic collapse. As I say at the beginning, I invited Ian to help co-host this episode, essentially, because so much of what Peter has written about is just not in my wheelhouse. So I invited Ian to ride shotgun with me, which happily he did, uh, and I thought it was a great conversation. We track through a lot of what's in Peter's book, why deglobalization is happening, why he's so confident that it will continue to happen, uh, how it has different implications for countries like China versus countries like America. Uh, and as you'll hear, there are not too many countries like America, in his estimation. And there's a long discussion on the implications of demography and demographic collapse. And just what is the relationship between labor and consumption and investment and urbanization? What does the world look like with shrinking populations? As you'll hear, it is a bracing and fairly alarming picture of guaranteed disorder, and scarcity. And uh, there's also some discussion about the significance of the war in Ukraine and, and other recent developments there. Anyway, I found it fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. Peter Zion is a geopolitical strategist and founder of the consulting firm Zion on Geopolitics. His clients include energy corporations, financial institutions, business associations, agricultural interests, universities, and the U.S. military. He is the author of The Accidental Superpower, The Absent Superpower, Disunited Nations, and most recently, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Ian Bremmer is president and founder of Eurasia Group, a leading global research and consulting firm, and G Zero Media, a company dedicated to providing intelligent and engaging coverage of international affairs. He currently teaches at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. And he has published 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. And his most recent book is The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Ian is also a foreign affairs columnist and editor-at-large for Time magazine. Apologies for some of the audio, especially on Peter's side. Peter's in the middle of a book tour, and we were unable to send him the gear we usually send to guests. So it sounds more like a phone call on his end, but his words are clear enough. And now I bring you Peter Zion and Ian Bremmer. I am here with Peter Zion and Ian Bremmer. Peter, Ian, thanks for joining me. It's great hey. to be here. Good to be with you guys. Peter, the, the occasion for this conversation is your fairly astounding new book the title of which is The End of the World is Just the Beginning, uh, which I read last week. And um, I knew I wanted to speak with you. I also knew that I am not uh, uh, entirely qualified to uh, absorb every aspect of your thesis. I mean, you, you cover so many topics which are really not my wheelhouse, things like geography and manufacturing and agriculture and industrial materials, etc., so I, I invited Ian on really to 
kind of co-pilot the plane with me here and be a backstop against uh, some of my ignorance about uh, these matters. And Ian is a, a frequent guest on the podcast. So uh, it's great to talk to you both. I, I think before, I mean, I'll just see, I, I'd like you to roll out your thesis as you present it in the book at kind of a high level at the beginning here. I guess I'll just kick you off by reminding you that one of the, the more provocative and unequivocal things you say in the book, among many provocative and unequivocal things, is that, quote, the world of the past few decades is the best the world is ever going to be in our lifetime. And uh, so basically, your, your claim that surfaces throughout the book is that the world as we have known it ended more or less in 2019, and there is no going back. And globally speaking, more or less everything that matters is going to get worse, and it's going to be worse for the rest of our lives. As we'll hear, you posit that there'll be islands of relative advantage, and America is going to do much better than China, for instance. But basically, the sky really is falling on your account. So I would, I'd love you just to jump in and give us a, a first pass at this argument. Of course. So uh, let's start at the beginning. Before World War II, global trade in the way that we think of it today did not exist. There was no manufacturer's trade, certainly not supply chains. Energy and agriculture tended to be kept in-house. You, if you wanted something, you went out and you took it, colonized it, you expanded into empire, and those empires clashed. Those clashes brought us the destruction of the world wars and the end of the imperial era. At the end of that conflict, the Americans proposed a new way of functioning. Instead of everyone having to have their own sequestered, protected, militarized, convoyed systems, the U.S. would use its navy, which was the only one of size to survive the war, and would protect everyone's commerce everywhere at any time, no matter who you wanted to partner with, where you wanted to go, where you wanted to sell. If, in exchange, you would serve as cannon fodder in the Cold War. We bribed up an alliance, and it worked. But the Cold War ended 30 years ago, and we've been backing away ever since. And in every presidential election, we have gone with the more populist candidate, and I would not exclude Biden from that statement. We're done. And at the time that the Ukraine war started, we actually had fewer troops stationed abroad than at any time since Reconstruction. So the American commitment to this sort of structure which was always a security structure for us, is now gone. Second, that structure changed the way we live. In a pre-World War II, pre-urbanized, pre-industrial system, everyone lived on the farm and kids were free labor, so you had a lot of them. But when globalization happened, urbanization happened, and everyone took those industrial and service jobs and manufacturing jobs in the cities, and when you move into a condo, kids are no longer free labor. They're just a really expensive headache. Adults aren't dumb, so we had fewer of them. You fast forward that 75 years, and it's not that we're running out of children. That happened 40 years ago. It's that we're running out of adults. And we do not have an economic theory for what a world where the retirees outnumber the children and the adults looks like. But we're about to live in that in the naked now. It's it feels good until now because as you age, if you're part of the global system, if you have a lot of people in their 40s and 50s, you know, people who have literally been in their careers their whole lives, well, they're very productive. But they've got to export that product in order to make it work. And in a globalized system, you can export from the more advanced aged economies into the younger ones. But that only works until you hit mass retirement. 
And at that point, you don't just have, cons- you don't only lack consumption, you also lack production and investment. And that is a position where the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Italians, the Belgians, the Germans, and more are all edging into in the first half of this decade. And there is no system that we are aware of, even theoretically, where that works. So we are now at the end of what has been the greatest period of economic growth in human history. And now we get to figure out what's next. Well, so there, there are two main pieces here. There, there, there's the claim about deglobalization and then the claim about demographics. I don't know which we should take first. I, I, there's, I, there must be a few assumptions built into each of them. I'm wondering, maybe let's take deglobalization first. That seems to be a a very simple claim. Why is it happening? And what if we, I mean, just just imagine a case where, I mean, you're claiming that America long ago decided to stop being the world's cop and pull back. And I'm wondering what Ian thinks of that. But let's just say that's true. And it's been true. And it currently is true. That's the kind of thing that could change, right? And that would upend at least one crucial part of this thesis. What if everyone who mattered read your book next week and and thought, oh, we have to arrest this slide toward the brink. We have to secure a globalized supply chain and make the world safe for commerce once again. Why couldn't that happen? Well, let's start with why it can't happen, and then we can go into why it won't happen. Mm-hmm. First, the can't. If you want to patrol the global oceans, you need to make sure that there's one overarching naval power who has the capacity to do it, and there are not challengers to the throne who could potentially disrupt it. The U.S. Navy is potent, but it is designed to smash countries, not protect trade anymore. We have 11 supercarriers, another three are on their way, fantastic tools for military power projection. But if you want to patrol the global oceans, you need destroyers. I would say you probably need about 800 of them. We have 70. And half of those are dedicated to protecting the the carriers. It's also the 1960s anymore. The Soviets were never great at anything naval, but now there's a wider range of middle powers, of which China is one, who would like to have their own sphere of influence in terms of maritime power. And that is just not something that works in terms of unrestricted merchant activity. So even if the United States wanted to do this, we no longer have the capacity to do it. And nor is there a country or a coalition of countries that have the naval power that would be necessary to build some sort of Pax global system. We just have sailed past that, to put it bluntly. In terms of why it won't happen, the United States politically has moved on. And part of what made globalization work is that for the Americans, globalization was a security pact, not an economic one. Everyone else got the economic benefits. We got to be able to write everybody's security policies. That was the deal. Mm. You do that for 70 years and economics change in the home country. And so we have seen the, the gradual departing of manufacturing, for example, from American shores to the wider world. We have seen countries that normally could not have built the institutional or physical infrastructure or industrial plant be able to do so because of global finance. And we've seen other players come into the market in terms of energy and agriculture that couldn't have done so in the imperial era except as colonies. They're all independent countries now. And there's some resentment in the United States. This is part of the rise of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, part of the return of populism to the core of our political debates. 
the idea that the United States has gotten a raw deal, even though the deal is one we made, even though it's one we pioneered. And the idea that the United States is going to build out a navy so it can bleed and die so that the Chinese can import raw materials and export machined products, that was always a dubious line. And so here Mm. we are at the end of the system. So uh, let me jump in. Yeah, Uh, please. And and let me me say, first of all, that I think it's appropriate that we, well, actually, big picture, I should say that Peter and I agree on much more than we disagree on. We've known each other for a long time. Uh, I read the book a few months ago. Uh, I liked it quite a bit. Uh, So uh, we're getting, this is, I think this is going to be more about nuance and deep conversation uh, uh, that elucidates as opposed to fiery disagree with each other on everything. I will say that to the extent that we disagree, we probably disagree a lot more on the deglobalization piece and how far it goes than we do on demographics. Mm. So I would spend more time on that. I think demographics, one of the few areas that we can make very strong predictions with confidence about where we are heading over the next 30, 50 years, because most of it has already happened. It just hasn't happened. It hasn't played out yet. As, you know, right. as Peter said, those people are born, uh, but we haven't seen what happens as they become old, and we're going to. Exactly. We know exactly how many 50-year-olds we're going to have in 20 years, because they're all 30 now. We do. Right. Now, I, I don't think we necessarily agree on how many we need and what the implications of that are. And one place that we will have an interesting disagreement later is about whether China necessarily loses because they have demographic challenges. I'm utterly not convinced about that, and I think that'll be an interesting conversation. But that's not where we are yet. Where we are now is a big question about deglobalization. I think one thing that's very interesting is the tension in this book, it's tension with Peter's argument, is that he said we just lived through the most staggering and extraordinary sort of 50 years that the world has ever had, and now it's over. But at the same time, he said that part of the reason that the Americans aren't going to do this and don't want to do this is because so many Americans feel like globalization, this wonderful period, was such a raw deal for them. And those things are, I mean, I'm not trying to be too cute here, but those things, they overlap, but they don't overlap perfectly. So we need to recognize that actually globalization was an enormous benefit for a certain number of Americans, an enormous economic benefit for a certain number of people and banks and multinational corporations that were largely had shareholders in the advanced industrial democracies, but that the the, the middle classes and the working classes in those same countries were largely hollowed out. And so globalization wasn't such an amazing time for those people for the last 50 years. And Thomas Piketty's written about that. And a lot of people have written about that. And that's why you're getting all of this populism and anti-establishment sentiment in the U.S. So part, there's, there's an argument to be made there. A second argument to be made is that deglobalization is not a switch. We have had almost unfettered period of globalization for the last 50 years. And I have been a staggering enthusiast for it. And frankly, so has Peter, um, in the sense that we know that we've created a global middle class. And we know that there's been unprecedented amounts of human development and wealth and factfulness. And you can read that wonderful book by Hans Rosling, who just departed us a few years ago, and you can see all those numbers. That's great. But we aren't right now in one period of deglobalization. I would argue that there are three separate types of deglobalization that are presently happening. They are different and they are constrained. The first is Russia and Russia's being deglobalized and decoupled from the developed world because they invaded Ukraine. 
they hadn't, that wouldn't be happening, as we've seen from the Europeans and their energy policy over the last 10, 20 years. A second deglobalization is between the United States and China, but it is relatively limited to areas that are considered to be critical for national security. Those are defined differently between the United States and China. And a lot of other countries around the world, including the Europeans and the Asians, want none of it. So even the Japanese, who are deeply concerned about national security tensions with China, and we saw that with Abe, and of course, we now see that with Kishida, want to ensure that they can continue to do more and more and more business with the Chinese. The Chinese feel the same way. So there's a constraint there in the same way that you feel that constraint from much of the private sector in the United States. And then finally, there's this every nation for itself, America first, India first, Malaysia first, which is this knee-jerk reactionary populism to global bits of globalization not working for parts of your populations. And that's absolutely everywhere, but it doesn't have a lot of power. And as a consequence, vested interests with a lot of money do everything they can to provide lip service, but not actually move policy so far and so fast. So I guess I am saying that I think that the broad dynamics that Peter identifies as to this tipping point from unfettered globalization to something that feels a lot more challenging, I agree with that. But I would, I, I'm much less sharp on globalization to deglobalization. I think it's more nuanced. Um, I think the transition is, is going to, it's going to take longer, and it's also going to have different effects in different parts of the world. I, finally, I would point out that I, I am less, I don't believe that we are in a Cold War with the Chinese. I'm not saying Peter does. He doesn't say that in the book. I also don't believe we're heading for one. In the hmm. same way that between the Americans and the Soviets, we had this mutually assured destruction that prevented us from getting into a hot war. I think the incredible amount of integration between the U.S. and the Chinese economies, never mind the Chinese economy and every other economy and the American economy and every other economy, actually provides very strong guardrails that really does limit our capacity to get into a cold war between the U.S. and China. And ultimately, that makes me more optimistic that the fact that the Americans and the Chinese have very different political systems and economic systems that have incompatibilities and they have military strategies on some issues that are clearly zero sum, that ultimately their economic shared interests, as well as their coming climate shared interests, and even their proliferation of dangerous technologies coming shared interests, make me less pessimistic about the next 10, 20 years geopolitically than Peter is from a global perspective, though not so much for the US, in his book. Right. Well, just before I hand it back to you, Peter, more or less everything you just said about China and, and there not being a risk of a Cold War is obviated by Peter's thesis, if he's correct, because China is more or less going to cease to exist as we know it in fairly short order. But we'll get to the, the specific claims about China in a moment. Yep. Yep. Peter, what, what, are, what is your, your response to Ian? I would say when Ian and I first met, what was that, nine years ago, eight years ago? Yeah. Something yeah, like that. yeah. What he just laid out was one of my scenarios that uh, this could happen quickly, this could happen over a long period of time, there could be a transition period. Uh, events of the last eight years, however, have changed my mind on that. I I've seen significant short-sightedness in foreign policy making in the United States and Europe, but most of all in China. I've seen a collapse of China's institutional capacity to process information, leading to ever and ever worse problems. And now we've got a little bit better demographic data that has come out of China, which is truly horrific. Uh, it's Actually, it's come out since the book published just a month ago. 
And we're now looking at a Chinese population that's less than half of what it is today as early as 2050. And in that sort of environment, China's just not competitive in anything. And that assumes there are no interruptions to the flows of stuff into China. So I have lost track of the number of clients that have come to me in a panic and wondering when things are going to go back to 2019, whether it's because of Trump or because of China. And I really don't have a lot of good news for them anymore. And just in the last 48 hours, I am very concerned about Germany's role. Now that Nord Stream is offline, we don't know if it's going back online. The last of the four pillars that support German industrialization manufacturing are in the process of crumbling. We have become so vulnerable in the last eight years, and everything has become so exposed. And just the bedrock that allows globalization to function, the idea that materials, energy, food, and manufactured products, intermediate products in particular, can just flow effortlessly, that's all stopped. And when I look at a country with a terminal demography who has no control over its energy or its machine inputs, it does not take much of a breath to knock that over. And I think we're going to see in very real time, in just the next three months, just how bad this can get for Germany very quickly. And if we've got Germany and China in a degree of economic duress at more or less the same time, but for different reasons, I don't see how we pull out of this. I would love to be wrong. I would love for there to be a transition period where we have a chance to plan. But everything has gone so far with no mitigation that I think we're well past the point of no return now. Okay, I, I, that's one I definitely feel more optimistic about. And look, I, I accept the point that there are a lot of corporates out there that are a little unmoored and a little untethered by things that have happened geopolitically in the world that they were not thinking about, were not expecting. I also think that you're going to get more of them coming to you, Peter, saying, I'm in a panic, we're not coming back to 2019, precisely because you are yourself moving towards more dire scenarios. And so there's going to be some self-selection there in terms of the people who they're asking you Fair about, enough. right? So, but let's, let's talk about Nord Stream, because I think that my understanding from the German government and from talking to a lot of people sort of inside this issue and our energy practice is that worst case scenario, if the Russians were to completely cut off Nord Stream, so nothing more after these 10 days are, are over, I guess that's July 21st, it is that the Germans would be in a mild but not severe recession. You're probably talking about a 2 to 3% GDP contraction for one year compared to what they are presently expecting. There would be a significant amount of consumer uh, stress that would require the Germans to pass on significant subsidies to the corporations and or benefits to the population that breaks their existing fiscal rule. They have plans for how they would do that. The amount, I have been stunned, Peter, with how quickly the Germans in totality have been willing to move on every single issue that they can to get a diversification away from Russian fossil fuels. Whether I mean, they're going to, they've got mobile LNG terminals that should be ready by winter, end of the year, early next year, absolute max. They've, a lot of efficiency measures they're taking. There's you know a diversification from the United States, from Qatar, from other countries. There, I mean, it's it's been shocking to me how quickly. And depending on who you talk to, they think that either by the end of this 
coming year or maximum by the end of the following, um, that they will no longer need any exposure to Russian fossil fuels. And no one in Germany would have said that on February 24th after the Russians invaded. Now, I'm not suggesting this isn't a big problem, but the scale of the problem, even in the worst case scenario where the Russians cut everything off, I think is manageable. Secondly, I don't think the Russians are going to cut everything off. I think it's interesting that so far, the Russians, when they have been, you know, sort of hitting the Germans and hitting the Poles and hitting others, it's been percentages. And it's been also like they do with so many things with fake arguments for why they have to do it because they're missing, you know, sort of uh, they're having technical problems. And of course, we know they're not really having technical problems, but why, why the need to lie about it? Why the need to obfuscate? And of course, it's because they recognize that they do want to come back to the markets over time. And they still believe, I think, that they will have that opportunity. They still think that, you know, after they take the Donbass and the Ukrainians who have gotten much more pessimistic over the past weeks, get stuck with something that feels like a frozen conflict, then the Germans and the Italians and others are going to feel differently about Russia than they do now. And furthermore, that the United States in 2024 with Trump running might feel very differently towards Russia than they do now. And so Putin sees that he still has opportunities in a long game that make him not want to throw the energy baby out with the Ukrainian bathwater. And so I'm just, again, I'm not saying that you're directionally wrong. I think you're directionally identifying a lot of stuff that for me goes along with geopolitical recession, goes along with a G0 global order, which none of us like. But I'm, I'm less dire. I'm closer to your more, I wouldn't say it's an upbeat scenario, but it's certainly much more of a muddle through scenario than what you're painting. Or, or is it just a longer time horizon? It's a longer time horizon, but also the fact that we respond to crises. My last book was all about these crises also are precisely the kick in the ass that many institutions, governmental leaders at the nation level and at the non-nation level need to start changing and reforming their institutions in ways that will be more sustainable for the 21st century. Right. So, Peter, I, I'd love you to respond to that, but I guess I'll, I'll add another piece here, which is, you know, obviously there are things that have happened recently that have put a lot of pressure on the global order, uh, you know, COVID and, and the war in Ukraine being, the, I guess, the two major examples. And on your account, all of that's just accelerating what was going to happen anyway. Again, we're going to jump into the, the demographic piece in a moment, but just on this point of a runaway trend toward deglobalization, why do you think it is actually happening? Is it, is it inextricable from the demographics or is it is its own variable? I think it's its own variable, but demographics are perfectly capable of killing it all by itself. Uh, either of these issues, from my point of view, are, are death blows and having them both in roughly the same time frame is just really bad luck. I'd like to go back to something that Ian said about the Russians. I am not convinced that they're going to turn Nord Stream back on or not. I don't know. That's an internal Russian political move that it's entirely possible they haven't made the decision on. I am far more convinced that even if you put Nord Stream to the side for the moment, all of the pipes that traverse Belarus and Ukraine are ones that are probably not long for this world. Uh, it's difficult for me to see a Ukraine that believes it's losing the war to allow those to continue to operate. And I think one way or another, we're going to be seeing Russian energy fall off the market for a significant period of time. Okay, and, by, on that one. And, and by significant, I mean decades. 
the last time the Russians, for whatever reason, had to shut in their oil, it was 1992, because their exports, their raw production was fine, but their internal market collapsed, so industrial demand went away. And that meant you had wells shut in in the permafrost. And when that happened, the wells become damaged, and you get frost and water expansion damage up and down the pipes and in the wellheads themselves, and eventually you have to rebuild most of the system. That took them 30 years last time. So Nord Stream is like the issue of the moment, like literally right now this moment, but there is a half a dozen other things that are semi-related behind the scenes that are perfectly capable of making any German hope for getting back to some sort of old normal or transitioning to a new normal on a time frame they can't control. And in that sort of environment, I am very concerned about what happens with German manufacturing, and I'm even more concerned about what that means for Germany's position within the Western world. Because it feels to me like the Russians are presenting the Germans with a simple choice. We can keep the lights on for you. But that means you're out of the, the coalition that is supporting Ukraine, and that means the logistics that you have that is supporting Ukraine are no longer in play. Or you can do this without us, and good luck with that. I, I, so I think that there's no chance that the Germans would be prepared to accept that kind of a Russian deal. I, I think hope they, you're right. And, that doesn't mean that the Germans have a hard time keeping everything running. I look, I get it. And I also, I mean, I've seen how fast uh, some of them are moving from gas to oil in terms of electricity needs. And again, they, they, I'm not suggesting they don't have problems here, double negative. They have huge problems here, but they're aware of them. They've taken that step. They understand that they made themselves far too vulnerable for far too long. It was a strategic error. And the Olaf Scholz government, which is quite stable, and its coalition, which is quite stable, Agreed. is moving smartly in that direction. And so I, I also think that the, it was the Germans against French opposition that made all the calls to ensure that Ukraine was given candidate member status to the EU. And part of the reason for that was because the Europeans, as a consequence, are going to be committed to rebuilding the Ukrainian economy. And no, they're not going to get into the EU for 10 or 15 years. But that also means that it gives them the leverage to ensure that the Ukrainians aren't going to actually shut down or blow up pipelines, that they, they are reliant on Europe going forward for their own rebuilding, irrespective of how much of the Donbass and the land bridge to Crimea the Russians actually control. So what I see after this Russian invasion of Ukraine is a very large number of stabilizing measures that have been taken in a very difficult environment by the Europeans, by the Germans, by the Americans, and even by the Ukrainians that helped me feel like this transition. If the Russians decide that they, that they want to go to a very bad place here, they'll be okay. And also, I would just suggest that remember that Putin said that if Finland and Sweden were to join NATO, that there would be hell to pay, diplomatic hell, economic hell, military hell. They've gone through, they're joining, and the Russians haven't done boo because they can't handle an additional fight with NATO on top of having 20 to 30% of their land forces getting chewed up in the first five months of this war. Russia just doesn't, I don't believe Russia has anywhere close to the actual leverage that would be implied by an argument that says they can really shut the Germans down. Mm. I really hope you're correct. I think many people listening to this might be mystified as to why Russia and Germany, granted, the, these are the, the conflict in Ukraine and its knock-on effects to 
countries like Germany are, are, are important topics, but why all of this has global implications? Why are we past the point of no return with respect to deglobalization? And why is any of what we're focused on in the last few minutes relevant to that question? Well, Ian, you want to split that in half? I can take the, uh, the economic side if you want to take the political and strategic. Sure. Okay. So economically, Russia is the source of largest, world's largest source of fertilizer and the components that are necessary to make fertilizer, specifically 40% of potash. Russia is the world's second largest energy exporter in terms of oil, number one with natural gas, which is not just used for fuel, especially in Germany. It is used as an industrial input. It's the base of German heavy industry. It is arguably one of the top three items that the Germans have in terms of making their industry globally competitive. And so if something happens to that, you're talking about a loss of the world's third largest manufacturing base. The energy that the Russians export in oil form, that's about 5 to 8% based on who's doing the math in terms of global energy supply. And oil supply and demand mechanics are inelastic. So if you take off 5% of global energy, you can count on prices roughly doubling. There's no way we can have globally available fossil fuels without the Russians as part of the system. On the flip side, they are also major players in things like platinum and palladium and lithium and rhodium and nickel and copper. You also can't have the green transition without the Russians. So the Russians and Germans, time and time again, generation on generation, have had this weird dance where they have to be each other's largest economic partner, but they are also each other's largest strategic rival. So they move together to try to avoid a war. A conflict happens anyway. They hive apart. There's economic dislocation as a result, which the rest of the world knows as a recession or depression. And then they repeat it. They've been doing this for centuries. And this is probably the last time they do it, in my opinion, because of demographic restrictions. So who, quote, wins, unquote, this time around really matters. So that's, I, I, I'm very happy with that economic uh, explanation. And uh, on the geopolitical side, the Russians, for reasons that I think are very explicable, nonetheless made an incredible misjudgment strategically when they decided to full on invade Ukraine. I mean, they saw after 2008 in Georgia, after 2014 in Ukraine, that they didn't, they didn't have a strong and united Western response against them. After 2014, the sanctions were pretty limited. You had European heads of state all coming to visit Putin when they hosted the World Cup a couple of years later. Like it wasn't such a big deal. And then when Biden meets with Putin a year ago in Switzerland, and it's Biden's agenda, he doesn't even bring up Ukraine. All he talks about is uh, the, um, uh, the pipeline attack on the colonial pipeline, the cyber attack, and said that Russia, if you guys don't work on that and, and cut that out, there's going to be hell to pay. And you know what? Putin actually rolls those guys up. And not, not only does he tell them to stop engaging in cyber attacks against American critical infrastructure, but literally in the weeks before the invasion of Ukraine, he actually has a bunch of the people that were leading the cyber group that was in charge of the colonial attack, has them arrested, which I mean, people, nobody talks about this anymore. Yeah. But the fact is that, that from my perspective, that was Putin telling the Americans, okay, we're going to take care of the issue that you care about. The issue we care about that you don't care about is Ukraine. And meanwhile, he's got, you know, Merkel's gone, who was the strong 
you know, sort of advocate engaged with Ukraine through the Minsk Accords. Um, he's got Macron saying that NATO is brain dead and he's talking about his own way of strategic autonomy. He's got the Americans with this disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal. The Americans kind of did unilaterally and that the allies are very unhappy about. And he's got Xi Jinping saying he's his best buddy on the global stage. Now, by the way, I think that if Putin had decided just to do the second phase of what he calls the special military operation, if he had just taken the Donbass and the land bridge, I, I think he might well have gotten away with it, that you wouldn't have had the expansion of NATO and the Olaf Scholz 2% of GDP and the Europeans cutting everything off. He could have gotten it right, but he thought that he had the big kahuna right there, that if he took Ukraine and took out Zelensky, that he would be able to recreate a Russian empire, that he would be a new Peter the Great, that he would have achieved what Solzhenitsyn was talking about and, 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 and redressed the greatest humiliation of, of his lifetime, which was the collapse of the Soviet Union by having Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia together under one Russian empire. And that was a bridge way too far. The Ukrainians fought way too capably and the West united and responded extremely strongly. So geopolitically, you now have a situation where not only have the Russians been decoupled from the West, but they've, I mean, even the Asians, even Japan and South Korea feel very strongly about this. And, and, and frankly, the fact that the, that the United States and allies even, you'll remember, froze Russia's assets outside that were in their jurisdictions. No one thought that was even a remote possibility. They were talking about maybe you cut them off from SWIFT and you, you ended up seeing the West doing far more to punish the Russians. So, I mean, you take what Peter just said about the economic side and add to that the fact that geopolitically and geostrategically, the Russians have been cut off from the West effectively permanently. That I, and long, as long as this regime is there, I don't see that changing. And of course, they're also in a vastly worse strategic position, security position, than they would have been if they hadn't invaded Ukraine back in February. So you want to—that's why you add all of that up. You have this com significant component of deglobalization, where for the first time in history, a G20 economy has been basically severed from the G7. We've never done that before. Okay, well, I think it's now time to bring in the variable of demography because um, it, it relates to even some of what you just said there, Ian, because on Peter's account, part of what's in the back of Putin's mind in his expansionist mood is the, the demographic collapse that, is, that Russia is, is suffering and the implications of that for purposes of security. So um, first, let me, let me just confess at the out, outset that you know, after reading... Peter's book, I, I was f somewhat alarmed and, and chagrined at how little time I have spent thinking about the significance of demographics. I mean, it's just is not something that I have spent any time on. And to hear Peter tell it, demography is, if not entirely destiny, it's pretty close. So, uh, Peter, I'm, I'm wondering if you could just give us a, a primer on the significance of demography for a few minutes and, and talk about the relationship between population and labor and consumption and investment and urbanization and just how all of that diabolical machinery works and why things are so dire in so many places at the moment. 
Well, it's just math, and math is diabolical, so I understand why most people don't follow it. It also takes a long time. Changes that are made to demographic factors today are not going to fully manifest uh, for a generation or two. Uh, it's just that the cause, the root cause of all of this is the mass urbanization and the mass industrialization that happened in the aftermath of World War II and then really got intense in the post-Cold War system. So think of a demographic structure like a pyramid with all of the babies down at the bottom, followed by the toddlers, followed by the children, followed by the teenagers. And as you go up that pyramid, it gets narrower and narrower because of simple mortality. Now, until we get to roughly 1800, the whole world was a pyramid. Lots of children, very few retirees, everyone else stacked up in the middle. With industrialization and urbanization, however, we got better health systems, and that meant infant mortality went down. But we also got urbanization, which means people had fewer kids. So that very bottom tier, the children, it got narrower in terms of fewer children, but then everybody lived like an extra two or three years. So the rest of the pyramid lifted straight up. You repeat that a half a dozen times as the technologies of urbanization percolate out. We get hospitals, we get ambulances, we get electricity in the countryside. And both of those trends continue. So you get narrower and narrower at the bottom, but the pyramid gets taller and taller and taller. And so your birth rate drops because you're urban now, but your, your life expectancy has extended. And China's probably the, the best example here. From the point that they started their industrialization process in the late 70s, the birth rate has steadily ticked down as life expectancy has steadily ticked up. And from roughly 1980 until roughly 2020, their population doubled, but with fewer and fewer children every year. As your population lifts up that age bracket, you get bulges. And at first, it's all good. Because when you have a lot of people in your 20s and your 30s, when that's where your bulge is, those are the people who do the consumption. Those are the people who do most of the low and mid-value-added labor. And this is the story of the Chinese industrial boom that we know. But if you keep aging, that bulge moves from the 20s and the 30s into the 40s and 50s. At the same time, that group at the bottom of the children continues to get narrower and narrower and narrower. And as that narrow section starts to lift up itself, you're now not just running out of children, you're adding up out of people in their 20s and their 30s. And this is where China was roughly 15 years ago. And in that environment, your advanced worker cadre, people's in their 40s and their 50s, it's super saturated. Their high-value-add work relative to their economic skill set for the economy as a, lot, as a whole does really well, and they start to outcompete everyone. And as you start edging into the early 60s, they become capital-rich as well because they have a whole lifetime of expertise behind them, and their kids have left home, so most of their big expenses are gone. But what is happening now is we're just going to the next step. That bottom part, the children, has been narrowing now for 60 years. That middle part with the adults has been narrowing for 40 years. And we're about to have a big bulge throughout the advanced world and just behind them in China, now moving into mass retirement. And so what was good for consumption and then was good for investment in production is now good for nothing. Because retirees don't add value. They liquidate their savings. They go into very low-velocity investments which really aren't used for industrial development at all. And you're left with an economy that we don't even know how to put a name to. And we're going to see the majority of the world's, of the rich world move into that environment in just the next few years. And China, if you believe the new data that seems to be leaking out of their census as of just a couple of weeks ago, 
it looks like they are far further along than we've ever thought. And they are absolutely going to age out this decade as well, assuming nothing else goes wrong. And in that sort of environment, globalization at its core becomes impossible because globalization is ultimately built on consumption. The European Union has worked for the last 25 years, even though it has a terminal demography, because they can sell to the wider world. But when too many countries pass that threshold, that's no longer possible. And so the, the developing world has not developed enough and is aging even faster than what we've seen go on in the rest of the world for the last 60 years. So every piece of the value chain and of the trade system that we've become used to in globalization, most of it just doesn't work anymore. You can have some smaller regional systems where the local geography and the local demographics interact in a constructive manner, but a global system that is not. Okay, so let's, I'd like to compare the cases of China and America here with respect to demography and, and its implications. Most people listening to this who have not, like me, have not thought much about demographics will have been thinking that China has been rightly touted for their economic growth, low these several decades, and also for their, their authoritarian ability to just get things done in a way that we can't, right? So you know, they can build a bridge in a matter of weeks that would take us 10 years to permit and another 10 years to build or to fail to build. And yet, that picture of kind of like an endless labor force and a friction-free environment where ideas can just translate into execution in a matter of minutes, that is all going away by virtue of this demographic collapse. And America has a very different fate with respect to demography. Ian, feel free to jump in if if you see the China picture in, in a fundamentally different way. But then I want to just compare Look, China I, and America. I, mean, I will certainly tell you that I was very deeply disturbed when I saw the report came out recently from, I guess it was the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences that thought that there would be a decline in Chinese population starting now. And they expect that in by the end of the century, you're looking at a Chinese population at under 600 million. That is utterly startling. It, it, if true, it is dramatically worse than the worst case scenarios of where the UN and others have expected that China's population would be. Even just a year ago, you were talking about peaking out at 2027 and that there would be a much more gradual decline. So yeah, that's a huge problem. Don't get me wrong. Well, uh, let's, uh, before, before, let's just take this one piece, because again, I think this is counterintuitive to most people. Most people believe they know that China had a massive overpopulation problem. And that was why you would have a one-child policy in the first place. So that the goal had to be at least to stabilize the population, if not shrink it. And so why is it a disaster to shrink the population? Give me some color to what must be true if a population is, is shrinking that much, that fast. Well, there's the question of who's working. And there's also the question of who's buying. And therefore, what happens to China's economy? What happens to its influence globally? What happens to its ability to project power? Now, one way to resolve that is you you bring in, you have an immigration policy that would allow massive numbers of people that can engage in that workforce, younger people and the rest into China. Historically, China's been very unenthused about that kind of a policy, right? I mean, this is not... It's also a very big, bolder move. 
That's, you'd need hundreds of millions. No, I know. But I mean, having said that, uh, you know, the Chinese have exported an enormous amount of surplus labor to, in, in, you know, in decades past to countries where when they had, didn't, had people didn't have anything to do, they made sure they had, they got them something to do. And it used to be that a big challenge that a lot of the backlash the Chinese had wasn't that their, their loans, you know, became equity, but rather because they were taking jobs away from local Africans or Bahamanians and others. Well, no one's talking about that anymore. So what do you, Peter, what do you, again, to just to linger on this point, the kind of the bridge to depopulation, why is the passage across that bridge so harrowing in, I guess, in the, even in the generic case, but let's take the specific case of China. What are, let's just say this is true and the population is going to shrink the way you expect based on just the, you know, looking at the demographic pyramid, barring the magical invention of an army of uh, super intelligent robots that can see to the needs of everyone as they start buying adult diapers. I've seen that movie. Uh, what are you expecting to be true at the level of day-to-day existence in China? If the new data is correct, there are more Chinese over age 45 than under at this point. And that means just maintaining the base productive capacity of the country is already past the no- point of no return. And there are no longer enough people in their 20s and 30s to even theoretically repopulate the country. And the reason that is so different than what we have in the United States really comes down to timing and space. So the United States started its industrialization process back around the time of the Revolutionary War, but it didn't get serious until Reconstruction. And so we have had multiple generations, five to seven based on where you are in the country, to adapt to urbanization. And so we moved from the farm to the exurbs, from the exurbs to the suburbs, from the suburbs in, for example. And as long as you've got a little bit of elbow room, raising a kid is not an onerous cost. And because we've had a continent worth of bounty, whether it's in energy or foodstuffs or raw materials or whatever, the cost of raising children in the United States has been very low. And if you look at the states in the Americans in the American system that are doing better demographically, they're the ones that have the more room. So California and New York are doing awful. Texas is doing pretty good. The Midwest is at the top of the tier. It all comes down to cost of living. For us, it's been a slow adaptation over literally centuries. The Chinese didn't begin this process until 1970, really didn't get into it until 1980. And then there was a state policy to urbanize as quickly as possible in order to move into manufacturing as quickly as possible. So they made the jump from subsistence farming to living in condos in one generation. They never had a chance to make a cultural adaptation. And the one-child policy was just tossed in on top of that. So we've got a geographic economic factor arguing for the fastest demographic collapse ever. At the same time, the state was punishing people who might have chosen a different path all at the same time. And it has now destroyed a full generation of possibilities for the Chinese, and unfortunately that generation are people aged 40 and under. So there is no longer sufficient, there's no longer sufficient bodies to try to take this down a different path now. The other piece here, which um, I have gleaned from your book, Peter, is that China is quite different from America with respect to how much it needs to import the the inputs to its agricultural system and its energy needs. So it's I think it's something on the order of 80-85%, correct me if I'm wrong, which it whereas in in America we can basically be self-sufficient with respect to food and energy. Uh, 
that's a good number kind of stake in the ground. It's going to be a little different for every commodity, but for in terms of oil, they import about three quarters, about three quarters of which comes from the Persian Gulf or further afield. Uh, they import almost all of their potash. They import either all of their nitrogen fertilizer or the, co- the, the components that are necessary to make it. They are the world's largest net exporter of phosphate fertilizer because that is used in rice. But they have shut that out of the market because some of their food supply problems that they're having now. And I don't anticipate, even in the best case scenario for that, renewing either this year or next, which feeds into part of the the global food crisis that we're seeing from the Ukraine. So a couple of things that I wanted to mention here. One one is that, again, I, I think the general constraints and parameters of the world's demographics are much less open to question and debate than deglobalization. And so, I mean, the numbers are the numbers. You know, the population bomb written in the 1970s was wildly excessive in its dystopian expectations. We now are moving in a very different direction much more quickly, in part because of this very process of globalization that Peter talked about at the beginning, which means that there, there's uncertainty around how bad this is going to get for China. But we can all agree that this is a major problem, a major challenge for China going forward. And by the way, when Xi Jinping became president 10 years ago, the first thing he did, the first big policy before he announced anti-corruption was ending the the one-child policy. And he failed. He failed badly. It (laughs) did not move the needle at all. So, I mean, the one good thing about the Chinese leadership, which comes from the fact that the Chinese Communist Party system is much more meritocratic than, say, Russia, an advancement in a bureaucracy that is desperately hollowed out and incapable. They are aware of what their challenges are, usually to a much higher degree than those in the West are. And so they're trying to address them. This is a big one that they haven't been able to deal with. But there is another component of this that is a mitigating factor. And I guess you're hearing me talk a lot about mitigating factors in this pod. Hey, I'll take what I get. Hey, nothing wrong with a mitigating factor. But the mitigating factor is that 10 years ago, no one in the United States believed that China would be at parity with the Americans in most major technological developments. No one thought that. And they are. People thought, oh, the Chinese can't innovate. If they make innovations, they're tiny, they're small, they don't have the creativity, they don't have the entrepreneurship. They don't have the, the private sector business model. The state-owned enterprises are too inefficient. That was all wrong. It was easily as wrong. In fact, it was even more wrong than the idea that China would become just like the United States as they got wealthier or that failed. It was even more wrong than that because in some ways the Chinese have engaged in meaningful structural economic reforms, even though they haven't politically, where in terms of the fact that the Chinese can't innovate, that's just ridiculous. The Chinese have actually innovated far more effectively than the Europeans or the Canadians, or the Japanese, the only country that does it as well is the U.S. And there is a very real scenario out there that in 10 years' time, China will actually be considerably more advanced than the United States in many core productivity-driving technologies. When we talk about artificial intelligence, we talk about voice recognition, we talk about anything that involves, in the digital economy, anything that involves the collecting and the utilization of big data, which the Chinese have. They have, the Chinese have vastly more data than the Americans do. They have no privacy to speak of. Uh, it's all collected through a small number of super apps, and it's leveraged. If you read, talk to the AI uh, experts in China, they believe, and this is their book, so I, I get that you know, they aren't to be completely trusted on this, that huge amounts of data with good 
scientists and coders actually will beat uh, mediocre amounts of data with fantastic coders and AI scientists. And I, I am agnostic on this, and the top people I know in the U.S. are agnostic on this. But I think we have to recognize that the kind of productivity gains that China would be able to profit from if they were able to actually take a definable hockey stick type lead from the Americans and everyone else in some of these new technologies would certainly mitigate the medium term productivity challenges that they will have from a demographic crunch. Does this fix them for 2100? No, but I don't frankly think humanity looks like humanity in 2100. So I'm not thinking about that. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about what happens in the next 20 years. And there, I think life is much more flexible still and uncertain than the idea that China inextricably falls apart. Uh, one thing that hasn't been mentioned, I, I don't think you mentioned it in your book, Peter, perhaps you do, and I missed it. But another strike against China is that when you think about how the one child policy was implemented with a bias against girl babies, I can't imagine there's a favorable ratio between childbearing age men and women at this moment in China. So I don't know if we know what that ratio is, but it's got to be fairly deranging demographically going forward. So Peter, take that on board, but also please react to this notion that technology in some form could come to the rescue. Because given the time horizon I hear you describing with respect to China in particular, I'm not, I'm not hearing any, any real basis for a save. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a, I'm picturing like that game of chicken that, that uh, I don't know if that it ever existed, but it exists in um, the uh, James Dean film Rebel Without a Cause, where you have two cars you know, racing toward the brink, daring each other to, to uh, stop at the last possible minute. And Ian has just described how it, impressively beautiful the interior of China's car is and how well upholstered it is. But on your account, given the demography, there, there's simply no brake on the car. And it's going to go hurtling into the abyss, whatever they're up to with respect to building out cutting-edge technology in the next decade. Well, let's deal with big data first, and then let's go to the, the sex imbalance. So I agree that when it comes to manipulating and utilizing big data, the Chinese are without peer. U.S. marketing is pretty good at it, but that's not the same as just having a whole state that's built around it. I have a concern that that is translatable into other things. It's not that it's an economic nothing burger by any stretch of the imagination, not what I'm saying. Uh, however, when it comes to transposing that and turning it into any other useful product in any other sector, I am very dubious. China has some incredibly brilliant people working there, and they are doing some incredibly sophisticated work. But it is a very small cadre of a very small cadre. If it was otherwise, the Chinese would have no problem building the fab facilities they need to make their semiconductors themselves, and they are making the low-end semiconductors. There are a number of issues of national security with economic matters that the, the Chinese would love to be world leaders in, and they're just not. So you can have a handful of Galileos in China, but they can't translate that down to the rank and file of the engineers, much less the, the regular workers, in a volume that's necessary to generate the lever that they need. And you so also can't there, eat, you can't eat big data, right? I mean, well, there's that too, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when it comes to raw commodities, it's, it's really, you have them or you don't. You can do things like the Japanese and figure out how to get by with less, and that's always useful, but you still need to have them. 
So you can have pockets of the Chinese economy that remain dynamic even as the rest of the system goes into breakdown. Now, now be curious, to be and clear, you can't eat big data, but you don't need to eat nearly as much when your population is shrinking this much. So part of this... So the question is whether or not with a degraded demography, they can maintain some sort of economic coherence. And like I said earlier, we're moving into completely unexplored right. territory. And, and also the, the, the idea that big data, even if it doesn't allow you to create and productize, and I think the jury is out on that, it might also afford you a much greater level of political stability, given greater economic volatility. That means China doesn't implode. While in the United States, you can have a lot more growth, and yet you have a lot of these technologies that aren't leverageable by a government that doesn't regulate them, and civil society actually erodes. So it may well be that you, you end up being more right on the economic side, but that the politics undermines the model. Uh, and I would argue the, the inverse is potentially true as well. We don't know how a state control system that the Chinese are developing is going to work with modern economic yep. theory. It's never happened yep. before. So um, January 2020, let me back up. All census data is based on a series of guesses. And even if the state is being as honest as they can, it's still just a guess until you actually go out there and count the snouts. Now, in January of 2020, the last what I consider to be robust data release from the Chinese, that was when they came to the conclusion that by the year 2100, they were only going to have 700 million people. And at that point, the sex imbalance for people aged 40 and under was between 5 and 20% off based on which province that you were in. And these were their own internal estimates based on primary school enrollments going back for the previous decade. The newer data that has come out in just the last several weeks suggests that that 2100 data, 2100 date is probably closer to 2050. And that the sex imbalance is probably at least twice as bad as it, they thought it was. Because local governments get their budget based on how many kids are in school. So the local administrators would simply inflate the data and then try to make the male and the female data more or less line up. Now, now this is not official, official data. These, these are a series of leaks. These are people from the, the Shanghai Academy of Sciences um, getting a hold of pieces of the 10-year census, which was completed a couple of years ago, but hasn't been released. And if, if this new information is correct, the sex imbalance is so far worse than anything we have ever seen in human history, including in the Sri Lankan civil wars of the 1970s and 1980s. It suggests that in some provinces, especially some of the urban ones, that the sex balance may be a factor of three to two. I don't see a country surviving without women. You know, maybe there's something in economic theory I'm missing here, but I don't see how that works at all. So what, what do you actually picturing. And so when you say a country is not going to survive, you're talking about it fragmenting as a political entity and undergoing some kind of failed state condition? Or are you, you're, are you talking about famine? What, what is Those the dystopian Those are all possibilities picture? that should be considered. Chinese history is, has a robust litany of examples of how once several central control breaks, that the rest of the system breaks apart very, very quickly. But none of those has happened in a period of demographic decay. So I see challenges to economic coherence. I see challenges to state power. I see challenges to central power. I see challenges to the food security system. And all of it is happening at the same time that we're looking at a population collapse that is literally unprecedented in human history. Okay, well, on that cheerful note, yeah. let's talk about how bullish you are, for, by, by comparison, 
for America in particular, I guess North America in general. Why is our condition so much different in a deglobalizing world than the, the Chinese or really more or less anywhere else on the map? Well, let's start with the basis. Uh, we never globalized our economy to the degree of everyone else. It was a bribe. And if we had included our economy in the bribe, it wouldn't have been a bribe and we wouldn't have had as many takers. So to a degree, the degradation of American manufacturing is in part not a bug, but a feature. We specifically opened up our market and did not necessarily demand reciprocal attention. That's part of why the populists are doing so well now, because you carry that on for 50 years and it starts to change a few things. From a demographic point of view, because we had more time and because we had more space, uh, we had a different structure. Now, I'm part of Gen X. I'm part of the smallest generation ever. My parents uh, are of the silent generation. That's the generation that suffered during the Great Depression and the World Wars. So they suffered lacks of opportunities and a lot of deaths, and that makes my generation small. But the baby boomers are the children of the GIs who came home for the war. And at the same time that they came home, we also opened up the suburbs. And so we had those cheap costs of living that we were talking about earlier. And so you had a more robust generation in a more robust economic environment, and that generated the baby boomers. And today, the baby boomers' kids are an equally large generation. We know them as millennials. Whereas my generation's kids are another small generation. We know them as Zoomers. The millennials of the United States, despite all the negative stereotypes, have one huge thing going for them. They exist. That has not happened in most of the rest of the advanced world. Everyone else, when the war ended and you had the baby boomers being born, they were a heavily urbanized environment, very few suburbs, and so their birth rates were lower than the generation that came before. So you can think of the American demographic structure as a bit of an hourglass, where it's wide for the boomers, narrow for the extras, wide, against for, wide again for the millennials. But for everyone else, it's just an inverted V. And the further down you go, the narrower and narrower and narrower it gets, with China being no exception. So you put those two things together. Our system was never invested into the global norm, and our population structure is fundamentally different. On top of that, you can play things like the fact that we more or less have a continent to ourselves. You can play on top of that the fact that Mexico was one of the last developing countries to really try to industrialize. They didn't start till after China. So they have a much younger demographic and partnered with us in NAFTA. It's perfect. You can add in that Canada, despite having a horrible, and to use a very loaded term, native-born population, uh, is aging faster than the Europeans, is the most pro-immigration country ever, and has managed to continually fill out its 20-somethings with imports. And then, of course, you've got South America, which, a little bit like Mexico, did not industrialize nearly as early and has at least another 40 years compared to much of the rest of the world. And we're all in the same hemisphere together. Now, I will never, never bet that the American government at all levels will take steps to make it worse. But the headwinds in trying to damage this are immense. We haven't had great government here for a very long time. And yet we still have the strongest economy. We still have the largest financial sector. We're still the world's largest producer of oil and foodstuffs. And because of NAFTA, we are party to the most forward-capable manufacturing bloc in the world. These are all good things. So, I, I mean, I, I agree 
much more fundamentally with Peter on the U.S. than I do on China. I think there's vastly more uncertainty around where China goes than the downside scenario. But on the United States, look, I agree. I think the economics look great. Uh, and I think the politics look parlous. And they look parlous in yeah. so many ways. The erosion of American political institutions, and we're talking about almost all of them, with the exception of mm -hmm. the professional military, has been happening and picking up speed for the last 30 years. And I can't come up with a plausible scenario where that turns around in the near to medium term. Despite all of these economic and geographical advantages that come from how and where and why the United States is today. Uh, I mean, look, there's no question that after the events of January 6th, that night, when the majority of the Republicans in the House voted against certifying the election irrespective, that what we all learned is that it wasn't a big enough crisis to make a damn bit of difference to the U.S. political system. Well, that's a horrible thing, given it was the biggest domestic crisis mm. of mine and Peter's lives, right? And yours, Sam. So, uh, and we're seeing, and as a consequence, 2024 looks like it will be worse, not just because of Trump running, but much more because of the delegitimization of the U.S. elections and of the tribalism in the political parties and the fact that impeachment is broken and uh, you know, legislative capabilities are broken and the selection of judicial uh, appointees is broken. And so, so many things about the United States that used to be great, or at least better, have become deeply problematic to the extent that nobody out there would want their political system to run like the United States. And 30 years ago, we beat the Soviets precisely because most everyone in the East Bloc thought that their system would be much better off if it ran like the United States. I think this is a deep and abiding concern. The interesting question to ask is to what extent, as the United States political system continues to deteriorate, are the primary economic damages experienced nearer term by countries and people outside the United States? Because the U.S., so dysfunctional is so much more inward focused and therefore unwilling to play the role it has played historically. So you get this weird whiplash effect where the Americans are much more politically dysfunctional than the Japanese, the Germans, the Europeans, but the U.S. is also seen as much more the safe harbor for the dollar and for investment precisely because those other countries don't benefit from American leadership the way they did historically. Now, in the short term, that may well play out. In the medium and long term, it won't. And that, that, of course, is something that we've got to figure out. Like all of these predictions, they're all right. The question is, you know, what's the timing? And getting the timing right timing is the so hardest hard. damn thing. <laughs> yeah, well, so, but I guess I'm a little surprised that the consensus we've just formed about the, the rosy, the comparatively rosy economic outlook for America wouldn't translate into some sense that our political fragmentation may heal itself. I mean, don't, don't you think that inequality on some level is at least in part responsible for our, our complete political dysfunction? And if the American dream is about to get uh, much dreamier, or at least much dreamier again by comparison, you know, as we look over the ramparts and we see a deglobalizing world unraveling, and it just becomes objectively true that the best place to live on earth is America, you know, once again, you don't think we well, 
are likely to put our house two, in order two, under, under those two, conditions? Two points. I mean, one is the other side of that is that China for the last 50 years has had an unprecedented amount of economic development and growth, and especially compared to and relative to everyone else out there. One would think that that would provide them, and more Chinese believe in the Chinese dream today than Americans mm. believe in the American dream. How much does that buy them? Does that buy them five years? Does that buy them 10 years? Does that buy them anything? I mean, I think that's an open question. It's worth thinking about. And the United States has a similar question to be asked. But also keep in mind that at least as of today, and it wasn't true in the 70s or 80s or 90s, the United States today is by far the most economically unequal of the G7 economies. Today, the United States is also, I would argue, uh, the most riven with identity politics concerns and dangers and anger yeah. and animus, where the left and the right have two completely different narratives of what the United States is and stands for. And then finally, um, the fact that the media environment and social media environment in the United States is actually the most broken and riven and toxic, and Americans spend the most time on it, especially in terms of news and politics. So when you put those three things together, it shouldn't surprise anyone that in the context of the G7, the Americans have the greatest political dysfunction. And I personally don't believe that the comparative advantage of the U.S. having the dollar as the global reserve currency, unless you fix the, polit the politics in a much more structural way, which creates radically more redistribution than anyone is really thinking about, is going to fix that. Hmm. I mean, I, I could nitpick at some of that, but I broadly agree with most of it. I'm not sure the inequality issue is as important, not that it's a great thing that we've got going right now, but the two most unequal states by a significant margin are New York because of Manhattan and California. And if you remove them from the data, we're actually no longer the most unequal. It doesn't mean it's not something we should work on. I'm just not mm. convinced that it's as structural of a negative as a lot of people seem to think. But anyway, two strategies how the United States gets back in the game. One, I can guarantee will happen. I can give you no idea of time frame, though. The United States gets scared easy. One of the advantages of being a pioneer state and having generations of people who push into the interior and do well for themselves is Americans do not react well to shocks and failures because we're convinced that everything can, should, will is ordained by God to get better every single year. And so when it doesn't, as the rest of the world knows, that it happens all the time we tend to lose our minds and we overreact. And we have seen this in most of our foreign policy crises, whether it's 9-11 or Vietnam or Sputnik. It, it generates a regenerating phase in American politics and economics where we react to what we think is the dying of the light. And we overcompensate and we push too far. And in doing so, we redefine ourselves and we redefine the world. I don't think one of a situation like that is going to trigger in the next 10 or 15 years. I think we have to wait for the dust to kind of settle on the deglobalized world and wait for someone else to rise up and spook us. You know, God forbid who that is. But I think that is kind of a, a hard stop, that it will guarantee some sort of regeneration of the United States in a new form. Whether looking back on or looking forward to that, it, it's a direction that we feel we should go. That's an open question. But we do this from time to time about once a generation. Second, the way our electoral system is set up is almost designed to generate moments like what we're in right now. When you have a first-past-the-post system and you have to get one more vote than the other guy, it encourages you to have a relatively big tent party. And when you have that, not everyone's going to be on the same page. You're going to have different factions. 
And those factions are going to move around under that big tent, jockeying for power over who gets to be the primary candidate to go on to the general election uh, and who gets to call the shots as to what the litmus test issues that determine who is a Democrat and who is a Republican. Every generation or two, we have changes in geopolitics and demographics and technology, culture, and the factions move. And if you look at the last three years, we've had the height of globalization. I would argue we're now in deglobalization. We've had the height of the baby boomers. We now have the retirement of the baby boomers. We had the end of the Cold War. We had the rise of China. To think that we're going to manage our politics in the same way, despite all those changes, I think is a little neurotic. And so the factions are moving again, and they're getting very loud, not just because of social media, but because everybody wants their issue to be the one that determines whether you're Republican or Democrat. Trump came in and unceremoniously ejected several factions from the Republican coalition. I would argue that national security and fiscal voters and business voters, for the most part, have become swing voters now. But he also managed to attract a lot of Hispanics and the bulk of the union movement. And we now have a tug and war going back and forth between Trumpist Republicans and Bidenist Democrats over where organized labor is ultimately going to shake out. The last time we did this, it was the 1930s. We had the Great Depression. We had World War II. Back then, African Americans were almost to a person Republicans, and big business were almost to a business Democrats. We will get through this, but it usually takes 10 to 15 years. And we're only in year six right now. We unfortunately have a ways to go. Now, whether or not you like the shape of the parties on the backside, you know, I doubt they're gonna, it's going to be a compromise. No one's going to be entirely happy with it. But we'll get through this, and the parties will look different. Maybe we'll have a third one. We've done that three times in the past. But this is, this is part of the evolution of the American political system. And before you think that I am just washing this as all away as something that we shouldn't worry about, on one of these seven transitions, we did have the Civil War. There is a risk here. What, what about the risk of the consequences of deglobalization just being, while comparatively benign for America, still fairly terrible? I mean, it, just, it's, you know, it occurs to me that there are several global problems that only a coordinated global response could address. And, you know, and you know, climate change is certainly one of them. What what do you see as the the further implications of a proper American retreat from the world stage? The primary negative implication for the United States in the short term, and by short I mean ten years or less, uh, is in manufacturing. We basically need to double the size of our industrial plant to be able to build the stuff that we've become accustomed to, and we have to do that in an environment where we have a shortage of workers for at least the next ten years, and probably a capital shortage as well. There is no way that we do that without a significantly inflationary environment. But doubling the size of your industrial plant is massively growth generating. So we are capable of having high growth and high inflation for several years at the same time. I think that is kind of my median case for the next five to seven years right now. So, And, and your picture, just to be concrete about that, so you, you are picturing a company like Apple pulling out of China and manufacturing their products in America in the not-too-distant future? I would rather not use that specific example because I think Apple has crafted a very specific hell for itself. But I think as a norm across corporate America, yes. I mean, Apple's already moved. You know, they're 
the AirPods are in Vietnam now, I think. And it was a real challenge because mm. Vietnam doesn't have a lot of the infrastructure in place, but they worked with them and it's so far so good. Um, but I, I, look, I, I think that you asked the question about climate change and you know, it's, mm. there's a lot to play for here. First of all, another place where the Chinese in most technologies have gotten way ahead of the United States. It's not just about big data. It's also about investing in a real way in, in solar and electric batteries and in, you know, EV supply chain around the world and in wind and in next generation nuclear. And you know, China has set itself up to become a superpower, if not the superpower, in the post-carbon energy environment, so much so that the United States is now paying attention. Even if you're not a tree hugger in America, you recognize you don't want the Chinese to take the lead on this stuff. And it's also true, Peter mentioned the, the semiconductor issue, and they are way behind on semiconductors. Of course, if they're able to cut a deal with Taiwan or worse, take it, that would resolve that problem for them. One of the reasons why we're fighting so I'm much. I'm going to disagree Taiwan with you right on that point. But le- and, and, and they are two or three generations behind on semis right now, but my, and they're putting a lot of money into it. But my, my, the climate change point, I mean, I'm fundamentally, if you were asking to open up this conversation, climate for me is one of the biggest challenges out there precisely because it is so counter-globalization. It is something that hits the poorest people in the world to the hardest degree. It undermines the emergence of a global middle class. It spikes the level of conflict and confrontation between the global South and the advanced industrial democracies. And that makes it much harder to have effective governance. And yet, even though the United States is absolutely not leading on climate globally, there are lots of people in the United States that are. Lots of banks, lots of corporates, lots of governors, lots of mayors, and you have the EU, and you have the Chinese on new technologies. And frankly, so much so that um, you, know, that you, you end up believing that we're on a track, a trajectory that looks more like 1.5 to 2.5 degrees centigrade of warming before we hit net zero and start taking carbon out of the atmosphere, as opposed to three, four, five, or six, as many climate activists were talking about over the course of like 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Now, look, Chinese demographics today look much worse going forward over the next 30 years than they did 10 years ago. And that absolutely, that, that wasn't, it's gotten worse since Peter's book. I was worried about it in reading the book. So absolutely, that's a big concern. But we are in a much better environment to tackle climate change as humanity than we were 10 years ago. And if you ask me to make the trade-off between those two things, I probably feel more strongly about the climate piece than I do about the China piece. So if you ask me where I think the world is going, I've, I've actually trended in some ways towards more hopeful as opposed to less. Peter? I, I have not. <laughs> uh... China has excelled at the manufacturing of these things, but most of these things are not appropriate to the Chinese geography. China is neither a sunny nor a windy geography. So we're seeing a lot of the same disconnects when it comes to the usefulness of them in China that we are seeing, for example, in Germany today. They just are not appropriate for the geographies where they're being installed in mass. Now, the United States has the advantage of having actually a fairly ideal geography for both wind and solar. Our weakness is on the political front. But until we figure out a better energy density item, better, better battery chemistry for mass grid storage, and I'm not talking about getting the four hours of storage that it would be necessary for the U.S. to probably reduce its carbon footprint by a third, 
I'm talking the four months of storage that it's necessary to camel up energy for the winter months uh, until we have a better chemistry than lithium, because we know lithium cannot do that. There isn't enough. It's difficult for me to be too optimistic on the climate piece, especially if we deglobalize the way I'm anticipating, because we forget that oil and natural gas are actually the low-carbon fossil fuels. And we're already seeing the Europeans go back to coal in a very big way because they really don't have a choice if they want to keep everything I make ready. a strong bet now, with you that the Europeans will end up moving faster towards renewables within five years' time precisely because of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, though they absolutely are going to be using more fossil fuels in the next two years. I agree with that. Right. But Germany is a great example of how that just doesn't work. They've installed $2 trillion of infrastructure and panels and turbines and grid shuffling in order to bring solar and wind to every corner of the country. And on paper, their generating capacity of their entire green tech system is 200% of their peak demand. And yet it only generates about 9% of their actual electricity because the sun doesn't shine in Germany. And now Germany's not a unique case, but there are parts of Europe where it looks good. Britain is great for wind, so is Denmark. Uh, Spain is great for solar. Greece is pretty good for both, although no one wants to dump a trillion dollars into Greece. That's, but that's changing, imp- but, but fair. But <laughs> until why we isn't improve- it? Sorry, wait, why isn't it nuclear to the oh, rescue at this point? The French are all about oh, nuclear, but there's just so much opposition still. It's incredibly stupid, but these governments are not willing, and the Germans first and foremost are just not willing yet to embrace nuclear as a real part of the long-term solution. I would just underline the word yet. I think one of the big services that Lavrov did, uh, the Russian foreign minister, is by personally and professionally insulting the new foreign minister of Baerbach in Germany on every possible level, is that he gave her the gravitas she needed to break with her party. when I agree. I think that's going to happen. They're just not there yet. Yeah, I think that'll happen this year. But yeah, we're not there yet. I think when uh, Greta Thunberg is caught in Ibiza snorting cocaine on Instagram, the dialogue might change. Do you know something we don't? I'm going to go with a no comment on that. (laughs) Certain scenarios could surprise us. Not that I have any inside information there. Okay, that's good. Anyway, from a technological point of view, we need a better physical chemistry setup in order to do the engineering to make a next generation wind and solar and especially battery. And the cost has to be at a point that the developing world can apply it in mass. We're not there yet. I'm hopeful that we'll get there, but that hope is based on very little other than hope at this point. Okay, well, as we, uh, want, as we wind down here, what do you think we should do, given the current state of affairs? I mean, if you could advise the next president of the United States, assuming that president isn't a moral maniac or imbecile. So not any of the two people we think are going to run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what would... Uh, uh, imagine we have some um, you know, comparatively benign person in the White House who will take expert advice. What should be our priorities? I don't think that's going fair. Forward? I mean, you also said before that you know Biden is more of a populist than Trump. I don't buy that. I, I think that his party has tried to move him in that direction. I think he's resisted it, and his cabinet resists it. And you and I know these people. You know, and I don't think he's a moron, you know, and I, I spend time with him. I mean, he's old and he's slowing down, but he actually understands a lot of the challenges. And this is a guy who like, wanted the Trans-Pacific Partnership, just can't get it done. 
is a guy whose inclinations on, you know, sort of on guns or and, and on, you know, abortion rights mm. and so many other issues are actually aligned with the majority of the country's population. You just can't get it done. And that's despite the fact that he has a lot of the key senators from both parties on speed dial on his cell phone. Well, you know? well let, let me just say as a, as a footnote here, I wasn't even thinking of Biden as a possible candidate in 2024. I just think the, the age thing is catching up with him so quickly in, in my imagination, if not in the actual news cycle, that I just think the, the chances that he's going to run are, are shrinking by the, the hour. But that, obviously, that may prove false, but I, I actually wasn't thinking of him as, no, as a possible enough. occupant. But, in but since Peter was taking a couple whacks, you know, yeah. I mean, I feel like... Yeah, but let, let's, let's just wind that back, because <laughs> this is a very different point. You claimed very early on in the conversation that, that we've been riding this deglobalization trend for many presidencies running, and that Biden is not only no exception, a really clear case of of that. Can you say a little more about that, Peter? When I look at the sanctions and the tariffs that the Trump administration put in, I see almost all of them still in place. That The notable exception was the deal that the Biden administration cut with the Europeans on Airbus and Boeing. Everything else, from my point of view, is still there. I see an economic populist and nationalist, and I see someone who is struggling with the Republican Party for leadership of organized labor, which traditionally has been the most economically populist faction within the American system. I had reasonably high hopes when Biden came in, and some of his economic policies, specifically when it comes to energy inflation, are the sorts of things that I learned in a fourth grade economics class that you just don't do. And I know the people on his cabinet know better. So it usually, I get to the third year of an administration before I just get disgusted. I'm not there yet with Biden, but these are things he should know better than. You mean talking about admonishing gas stations to reduce their prices? That's an excellent, very recent example. But there are a number of things in that space having to do with the SPR. Uh, this talk of a price cap for Russia, which, you know, honestly, I find fascinating. I would love to see how they would try to do that. That shouldn't work. I would love to be surprised. The, the lack of preparation, the lack of awareness when it came to the sanctions on the Russians, and then preparing backup plans for if they worked. I just haven't seen too much forethought. And I find that disappointing because I really did expect better. I, I guess, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm finding myself more differentiated from you on some of this stuff. I mean, like, for example, the sanctions were not meant to change Russian behavior. The sanctions were mentioned, met, meant to punish Russia for the long term and show not just the Russians, but other countries around the world that there will be real consequences, serious consequences for invading uh, and trying to wipe off the map uh, a country of 44 innocent Ukrainians, 44 million innocent Ukrainians. The NATO policy and the coordination of the military response as well as the aid that's been provided to the Ukrainians, again, well beyond what anyone would have expected. And the His strategic decision-making, I have no quibble with. Yeah, well, I think that's spot on. So, and and, and uh, the issue of the oil uh, and whether or not you're going to have something that in reality would feel more like the Europeans providing waivers for Europeans in the next one to two years to buy oil at effectively the same discount that the Indians and Chinese are buying it from Russia, so that the Russians are making the re a reduced amount of money, but they're they're producing and selling it everywhere, uh, as opposed to uh, putting a 
a services and insurance ban on shipping where the Europeans are responsible for over 90% of it. And as a consequence, you had markets really seizing up because they were concerned that the Russians wouldn't be able to ship energy oil anywhere. So that, that actually did strike me as a useful back and forth conversation that was driven primarily by Yellen and not by Biden, who I agree with you, agree. knows very well these concerns. And, and the finance ministers in Europe all agreed with her. Uh, but politically, it was hard to get the heads of state in the same lane. And that's because, you know, the Polish government, the German government, the French government have some different views on this stuff. It's challenging. But I would say that as mm. opposed to Afghanistan, where I probably give Biden like, you know, a C minus or a D, I'd give these guys on Ukraine so far like an A minus. And I'm talking including sanctions. So, you know, look, I, the problem I see it is that no matter who you put, you could put the most incredible, this goes back to Sam's question, you could put the most extraordinary leader that really understands all the policy issues, has the, the intellect to get inside it, has the experience to know what does and doesn't work, has the personal network, both domestically and internationally, and the charisma and the leadership to convince people that the guy or the woman walks on water, and still with the level of political dysfunction in the United States, most of this stuff wouldn't get done. And that's a problem. Because So what I would advise uh, the United States, a, a president coming in, would be know where you have to give up on exceptionalism. Know where you need allies more. Not because America's not powerful, but because America can't get it done. And there's a lot of things out there where the Germans and the Japanese and the Canadians can do a lot more lifting. And heck, the Brazilians and the Mexicans. I mean, I, I do fault Biden for you know not prepping properly for what was a failed uh, summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. That was that was one he should have gotten better uh, because he wasn't willing to be the multilateralist that he should be. And there are places you don't need to be a multilateralist. American mm -hmm. defense support for Ukraine is one. We're doing well beyond that of every other country out there because the Americans have that capability. But there are a lot of areas out there where we can't be the exceptionalists that we used to be. And having a president that understands that and leverages it would be valuable in my view. Mm. I'd say two things. Number one, we haven't had a national vision since the Cold War. It's time for an update. And the last president that we had that thought we should have a conversation about what our vision for the world was, was George Herbert Walker Bush. And we kicked him out because of it. Uh, I would like someone to take that risk early in their term. Uh, and then second, until that vision manifests, there is a close circle of countries that are geopolitically unfettered, are culturally linked to us, or some combination of the two, that I think we could kind of make a friends and family plan to prepare for whenever we are ready to lead again. So New Zealand, Australia, Japan, Canada, the United Kingdom, France, and assuming we can line it up, I hope Mexico. It's not enough, but that seven, that would be enough to be a hell of a springboard whenever we could get our internal systems in order, and then we could hit the ground running at that point. Before we close, I want to clear up some confusion I think I have around uh, this just narrow question of what we should believe about the sanctions on Russia at this point. What larger lesson other countries are, might be drawing? Is it your belief that the sanctions have worked in some way, or because it, last I heard, Russia's actually making more money on fossil fuels this year than last year because people can't stop buying 
Russian fuel and the price has gone up and that the ruble is, has also not collapsed against other currencies. The ruble what, what's that? Is, a, is a canard Agreed. because the reason the ruble is doing so well is because it can't buy anything. Okay. So they've lost enormous amounts of purchasing power. You know, the Soviet ruble was basically worth a buck in the day, uh, and it was very stable and consistent, but they didn't have an open market. That's essentially what's happened to Russia right now. So that's propaganda that they use to try to make themselves feel better, but it's it, it, the economy's in very significant trouble. They've, mm. as a consequence of these sanctions, they've lost about 300,000 highly talented Russian workers that are probably not coming back that are critical to which I would add that the, the, the intellectual capital flight that we have seen out of Russia since the war began is far in excess of what we saw in the 1990s. Oh yeah, it's devastating. Mm. It's just devastating. Mm. And and you know the Russian in addition to the freezing of their assets, um, you're talking about a minimum contraction of 10% of GDP this year, probably more like 15, and it's going to get worse going forward. Keep in mind, yes, you're right that Russia has made more money on oil and gas because they've been because prices are up and because the Indians in particular are buying a hell of a lot more than they were before. The Chinese are buying a little more, not so much because their economy is not doing as well this year with zero COVID. And so the growth isn't there. But India at the same time is also ripping up a lot of their military agreements with the purchasing from Russia because they're not going to buy MiGs and helicopters if they can't get spare parts going forward and they know they won't be able to. So these sanctions from the West on Russia will have a level of crippling long-term impact on Russia that I think will be comparable with what the West has done to Iran over the last couple of decades. That is an enormous deal. And it is not going to change Russian behavior. But that was not what the intention of the sanctions were. The intention that no one believed that Russia was going to pull out because of sanctions, that's a message to Taiwan. That's a message to Japan, to South Korea. That's a message to American allies mm-hmm. that we're going to defend a country and they're going to be, there's going to be punishment. And this is what we do to China if, you, if they were to take a whack like that. And my God, the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Australians and New Zealanders who all showed up at the Madrid summit for NATO were saying that that really meant something to them. That's been a win. But the way that you're changing Russian behavior is by very significant military support to Ukraine, which prevented the Russians from taking a lot more land than they would have taken by now, frankly. Mm. And, you know, you don't want to say this is going to get resolved on the battlefield because the Russians will ultimately have big advantages compared to Ukraine. But my God, it's made a difference. And that's why I give them an A-. I would only, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I would just add one little bit of context. One of the fourth patches of sanctions that the United States threw on there that we kind of thought of as almost a throwaway, which in my opinion has proved to be the most significant one yet, is the ban on any sort of technical cooperation, especially when it comes to manufacturing, yep. just getting parts in. Hmm. The Russians have kept most of their civilian industries running on spare parts imported from the West and just shoehorning them into old Soviet equipment, most notably in agriculture. But the inability now of Russia to keep really any supply line, any manufacturing run working has been absolutely devastating, and it is not the sort of thing that you recover from without 20, 25 years of heavy, heavy state investment. I don't think the Russians have that kind of time. And do we think, given what you just said about the the effect of the sanctions on Russia, do we think that the likelihood of China going after Taiwan has been reduced in the short term? I think so. 
The Chinese have always looked to the Russians as the canary in the coal mine. Whenever they're considering something risky, they watch the Russians to do it first, and then they adjust. You know, it's not a, not a bad strategy. And, um, well, they now know that the war would not be a rollover. And the Ukrainians have really only been preparing this for eight years, but the Taiwanese have been preparing for two generations, and the Taiwanese have a moat. They know now that the sanctions would be crippling, and as, you know, say what you will about the Russian economy. It's, it's not great, but it is a massive producer and exporter of energy and foodstuffs, but the Chinese are the world's largest importer of both of those. So you're now talking about a deindustrialization risk and a famine risk. But I think it's the boycotts, not even state policy, just boycotts that has really spooked them the most. The idea that corporations will take the lead from individuals or consumers is so alien to the CCP methodology. But that would be the end of the Chinese economic model if Western companies just decided to leave. So everything that they thought they knew 40 years ago and that they've been planning for has proven to be wrong in less than a couple of months. They need a plan B. They don't have I, I think the people, I just came back from Tokyo. And one of the things that I discussed with the government that most surprised them, because they all ask about Taiwan. They all ask about what you think the, the Chinese thought pattern about Taiwan is, given what's just happened in Ukraine. Everyone cares about that immensely. And, and even more so now that Abe has been assassinated. And, and my response is, you're thinking about this as if China is the principal unknown variable. I actually think it's much more about the United States. For reasons that Peter has just said, and for you know, my, my views on the sanctions and the rest, and the military relationship, uh, I don't see the Chinese wanting to take that kind of a risk on Taiwan anytime in the foreseeable future, certainly not in the next five years. But I think if the United States were to have a constitutional crisis in 2024 with massive violence in a whole bunch of states and not knowing who the president was for a period of time, would the Chinese see that as an opportunity to maybe shake the branches a bit and see if the status quo was really as firm as they thought? And then if the Americans don't respond, then maybe do a little more? Oh, absolutely. So I, I think this has much more to do with how the Chinese perceive where the Americans are going to be politically in the next mm. three, five, 10 years than it does with, you know, sort of the nature of all of the enormous economic, military, strategic challenges that would be incumbent from a sudden invasion of Taiwan, as we've just been discussing. Well, I see we're getting to the, um, the end of our time window here. Before I let you guys go, I just want a, a big picture view of where this looks globally, if most of what we've said thus far is in fact borne out. And I guess, um, I mean, so I mean, like, what are the implications of America less and less being the world's cop and onshoring more and more over time? Generically, I think the, the assumption was if America pulls back, well, then someone, very likely China, would be disposed to project power in rather unpleasant ways. But absorbing Peter's thesis, that seems profoundly unlikely that they, they have the ability or will to do that. Does much of the world return to something more like the state of nature, uh, given these trends? Or what, what are you actually picturing? Well, on the positive side, I think Ian said it best, G0. The institutions fail. The connections fail. And trust becomes an incredibly short supply. 
but that assumes that ultimately we all just kind of hold our breath and don't take any destabilizing moves. And by us, I mean everyone. I think a more likely scenario is we see some of those disabling moves, and I honestly see the Ukraine war as just the first of a series of significant regional disruptions with global consequences. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, if the Americans continue to pull back, and the response to the Ukraine crisis has been at least a blip in that, and I think that there could be more blips, so more crises in part are part of the solution, but. I don't see the Chinese emerging as the superpower to replace the United States at all. In fact, Chinese policy, again, addressing the principal problems they see for themselves, the dual circulation policy of Xi Jinping is focusing more on Chinese consumption and Chinese supply chain precisely because they see how constrained that is likely to be and they want to forestall it. So the idea that Belt and Road is going to become exponentially greater and they just take over the world as the largest economy and everyone is aligned to them as opposed to the United States, like I think that is wholly unconvincing, the Kishore Mabubani thesis that we're heading towards the Asian century. I don't buy that at all. Hmm. But I, I also would say that I just think that we aren't going to be in centuries anymore. I mean, if there's any, if I wanted to take a real macro whack, if we were to have a conversation like this again, one thing I would say is that demographics is the one place where you can be most convinced that you can make very strong long-term projections. I, I think the rate of change of technology and what humanity means is so much greater. The rate of change of dangerous proliferating technologies and the upside of those technologies is so much greater than anything we've ever experienced on the planet before that going farther out than 10 or 20 years in terms of thinking about what even the state system is you know i mean how yeah. how how a westphalian system exists in in 2060 and 2070 are we talking principally about states is that the ordering principle for the world i think there are credible scenarios where that's not true and frankly Very that's credible. in some ways that's that's much more provocative and revolutionary than saying that China is going to implode. Um, we'd be saying that none of these states are actually going to be principal actors on the global stage, especially if the world goes more digital and goes more virtual. Maybe technology companies end up having a big piece of that. I think that's a credible argument to make. But my point is that the farther out we get, the harder it is to really make these predictions. Hmm. Peter, you have any closing thoughts? Oh, no, I'm not going to follow up that. I couldn't have said that better. Okay, well then, uh, the future will be uh, some version of Rollerball. I, uh, <laughs> I love that movie. My God, <laughs> the original one with James Conn. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was like seventy five yeah. or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, it scared the yeah. shit out of me. Yeah. Like, war, Jesus. war is rather than war. We have uh, corporations doing roller derby. Yeah. Well, uh, that, gentlemen, you know, honestly, been... that sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gentlemen, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for educating me, and um, I hope we do it again because. There'll be more to talk about, no doubt. A lot of fun. This is great. Thank you. 